Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mostly Weather podcast. Today we're going to have a bit of a Christmas special for 2017 and to join me in all things Christmassy I've got Catherine Ross. Hello. And Jeff Norwood-Brown. Hello. And my name's Claire Whittam and Catherine is wearing a very festive jumper here and unfortunately the rest of us aren't so that was a bit disappointing. Well done Catherine. <laughs> it's nice white, it's got a snowflake on it and I think that sets us up perfectly for the rest of today's podcast and actually perhaps takes us to what should be our first question really which is well what what is a white Christmas? What officially makes a white Christmas? So uh, the, the Met Office defined this for quite some time. What do you think a white Christmas is? Do we all have this concept in our mind or is it just because I happen to work here? Well, lots of people think it's like a snowflake has to fall on the top of what used to be, I guess, the London broadcast. That's the one I grew up with, yes. Yeah. 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 So, and it's all so about that, placing your bets. That <laughs> was the case for quite a long time. It made me smile, actually, because if they declared it wasn't a white Christmas because they hadn't seen a snowflake in London, how would the people of Aviemore feel about that? You know, because I'm sure they get snow most Christmases. But it has changed slightly now, so it comes down to one snowflake to be observed falling in the 24 hours of the 25th of December somewhere in the UK. And I think this has largely come about, one, because the Met Office doesn't have the building anymore, so it doesn't have a observation station up there. But secondly, I think there was an awful lot of betting on whether it was going to be a white Christmas, and people, you know, all around the country wanted to place bets, and so they wanted regional variations of whether they got a white Christmas or not. So these days, it's a snowflake falling somewhere within the 24 hours of the 25th of December. Does that have to be an official observation? I think it has to be an official observation. I don't think the bookmakers are going out and doing the observations for us. I think it has to still come from the Met Office. So it's one of our observation sites around the country... Some, a person has to see it or it can just be detected by I, th- I think it has to be a person because if it's just a single snowflake and it's not falling right over the detector the detector's not going to see it so i think you're right i think it is a person it has yeah. to be a person i so would we, have thought we have in the library and archive we actually have a fact sheet on white christmases and we try and update that every year and you know, and that will try and note the kind of the places the snowflake was seen if it was seen and i think that's got connections to people actually seeing those snowflakes so do we all remember that christmases used to be white when we were young or not I have a nostalgic version of Christmas in my head that, yeah, it used to snow and we would go tobogganing in the park. Yeah. Well, I can I, safely say I don't remember a single white Christmas. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So <laughs> then I lived on the Isle of Wight, which is kind of warmer than much of the country at that time of year. Yeah. So I, I do remember Christmases, especially the school holidays around Christmas as being white every year. And that's not actually the case. It's just that I remember the really white ones really well and memory's not that good you know the so. mild damp ones just, <laughs> yeah they just they just, just, just into the distance <laughs> yes. disappear so i mean it is it's interesting because we do believe that white christmases in the uk are becoming more and more rare and there's a couple of little reasons for that one of the more interesting ones i found out was when we moved from the julian calendar to the gregorian calendar which sort of moved Christmas forward slightly. Shunted it, (laughs) Yeah, by, well, it was originally 10 days, wasn't it, when they first came out with the Gregorian calendar, but I think it's around 14 days now, you know. So when you say moved it forward, it used to be what we would now think was about the 10th of January or something. Yes, yeah. And now it's in... And you're much more likely to get snow in in January and February. I remember that fact because my birthday's actually in February, and I remember having lots of birthdays when there was snow around as well. Mm -hmm. So now that we've moved... Christmas forward slightly 
it's a slightly less chance of getting a white Christmas. But when exactly did that happen? So we're not talking about the last sort of 50 years, though, are we? So this is a kind of a real historical feeling. No, so, so we adopted the Gregorian calendar in 1752. OK, so yes, it's not in your lifetime's memory. No. Not quite, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know I am the oldest here, but no, not But I quite. guess, yeah, we have weather records that go back before then, don't we? So yeah, we it's do. perfectly feasible that there's this consciousness, if you like, about there being a white Christmas based on records and people's past on knowledge even back from the 1750s absolutely and when we're looking at the weather direction then we always have to remember to change the calendar if we're thinking about the dates or what's what's the actual date in the julian calendar and what's it in gregorian because we can suddenly place it at the wrong time if we're not thinking about when was this diary written and what calendar was it written in oh that's really interesting and yeah i guess when i do some of my research i tend not to go back that far for the podcast and things that would never have crossed my mind that am i looking at a source that was written prior to a change in the calendar and yeah and does it that mean mostly it doesn't matter but occasionally it does uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and not every country adopted the Gregorian calendar at the same time, which I didn't realise either. So that was quite enlightening. So, how many times do we think in the last, say, uh, fifty years or so, do we think we've had a white Christmas based on the new factor of a based snowflake falling. falling somewhere in the UK and observed by a real human being? So the modern criteria apply to the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. I reckon it's got to be quite high. I, I reckon say. so. Yeah, I don't know, 38 it's, out of 50 years? I've actually got 38 written down. Are you looking at my notes? So uh, I'm not, but I <laughs> but we did do a podcast a, a little while back. In fact, I think it was episode three where we looked at snow, and it might ah. mean that that's a, a fact that's got lodged in the deep recess of my brain. <laughs> so, yeah, so 38 times in the last 54 years, so maybe a little bit less than 38 in the last 50 years. But I suppose uh, what we tend to think of is like kind of that snow lying rather than necessarily snow falling falling and having snow lying across the country is probably a lot rarer than having a single snowflake fall somewhere exactly yeah but that brings up another question entirely is why do we have that concept that christmases should be white and the reason seems to come down to charles dickens and the reason charles dickens has inspired that notion on the nation is that when he was born so he was born in uh, on the 7th of february 1812 And um, for the first sort of nine or ten years of his life, he was in a very cold period. And most of his Christmases as a child were white. And they think that's influenced a lot of his writing. So you think of things like A Christmas Carol. It's all set in Victorian era of snow at Christmas. And that has somehow seeped into the national psyche. And that's why we seem to be, not obsessed, but very interested at least in having a white Christmas. Yeah, and in Pickwick Papers as well, he describes this whole Christmas party with, you know, travelling through snowdrifts and all that. And it's, it's very much the sort of the white Christmas party that we think of now. Looking back at the records, I don't think the white Christmases were happening while he was writing his novels. No, I think it was during his childhood. It was just his childhood yeah. that he remembered. Like we said, we always think back to, I remember, you know, the white, all the white Christmases, but probably had one or two. So is this just natural climate variability that it meant that during his childhood there was more snow or is there something else going on in the in the climate and the atmosphere at this time well there was the little ice age as they call it so when exactly was the little ice age then well i mean looking through the sources i've been looking at essentially it was kind of from the late 1600s through to sort of the early 1800s there was a period when there were very regular serious sub-zero winters much harsher than was 
average or normal, if you like. And I think that was the period they sort of called the Little Ice Age, if you like. It's a shame that Doug's not here because I'm sure he could tell us all about the kind of climate at that time. But I think this is kind of natural climate variability, but on a a slightly longer scale than we're perhaps used to seeing. Yes, it was kind of a century of colder winters and they used to have frost fairs and all sorts of things on the Thames during that period as well. I was wondering that. So the frost fairs people, I think, are vaguely familiar with when the Thames froze over and it was so thick that they were able to hold literally fairs and um, all sorts of stalls on the ice and people could go ice skating. So do you guys have a feeling as to whether that coincided with Dickens as well? Or was that a little bit earlier? Uh, just a little bit earlier. I don't think there was really one in his lifetime. I'm just no, trying. 1700s. So yeah. The late 1700s was the frost fairs. Although, you know, we were in the Little Ice Age, there were other factors involved in the frost fairs as well. So this is, as you say, when the Thames froze over and they just had a big party basically yeah. on the Thames on the ice. You name it. I mean they, they were cooking roast boar and riding carriages and all sorts of things they had, on the Thames. Yes, skittles, <laughs> swing boats. I read that they had a donkey race on the river, probably just because they could. Just because, yes. But, <laughs> Why wouldn't you, you know? Also the Thames was slightly different then as well. It was a lot wider and so ran slower. And also you had the old London Bridge. So the frost fairs were held around the old London Bridge, which was um, it's just up the river from say the Tower of London and Tower Bridge. It was in that area. But that slowed the river down as well. Now, these days, the Thames is a lot narrower because they've built all the embankments for the sewerage systems, essentially, and it runs a lot faster. Plus, the bridges don't have as many arches, so the river can flow faster, and therefore it's less likely to freeze because uh, so you don't kind of get that stagnant water that's just cooling in place and allowing the ice to form. It's much faster flowing these days. So it was yeah. a combination of, yeah, the colder temperatures that they had during the Little Ice Age and a slower moving river. I do find it quite amusing, though, that kind of all of our knowledge of this period, a lot of it's very London-centric, yes. isn't it? Yeah, we're talking about the Thames freezing over, but what about all the other rivers further north? <laughs> Not even that further north, you know, Scotland must well, have the, been a very different... a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, one of, a lot of the records we have on the frost fairs were because printers thought it would just be good fun to set up their print shops on the Thames, and they printed all sorts of leaflets and pamphlets about the frost fairs, and that's what we've kept on to as records, but... Even saying that, it's almost uh, mythological that they had frost fairs every year, but that wasn't the case. It was only about 10% of the time that they had frost fairs, so only one in 10 years. So even during this period that we call the Little Ice Age, there's still year-to-year variability going yeah. on. That means it's not constantly I mean, frozen. We're not talking about sort of some they saw Hollywood I- movie, glaciation. <laughs> yeah. they, yeah. saw, they definitely saw ice on the Thames a lot of the time, but not enough that the whole thing froze over and they could actually hold a fair on there. One of the facts that keeps coming up, if you ever look at frost furs, is that they drove an elephant across the river at one point. As you do. To test how thick the ice was. Begs the question, where did they get the elephant from? Um, the menagerie at the tower, potentially. Of course, yeah. So, uh, But secondly, what if it wasn't thick enough to hold an elephant? <laughs> what? It would learn to swim. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can swim anyway. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and that was nearer Dickens' time, actually, that they actually drove an elephant across the river for for reasons, I think maybe just to prove that they could do it, and therefore it was safe for customers to come on and spend lots of money and have fun. Well, I guess that's the same 
going on a complete tangent here, but, you know, they've built these glass bridges in China, haven't they? Um, oh, yes. One of the ways the they've demonstrated that they're safe is by kind of driving vehicles over them to say, you know, yes, 100 people stood on this glass bridge, won't break. So I suppose it's a very early, similar concept, really. It's, as you say, Jeff, it's demonstration that it's safe to walk on the ice. Yeah. It's proving to you. I like to think it's proving to the customer that it's safe to come on and spend your money. <laughs> So we started off at Dickens being the influence on the white Christmas. So yeah. he, there's sort of, he's aware, I guess, of the frost fairs. He's got snowy childhood. They, they seem to have stayed again in the national psyche for some reason, the frost fairs, because there was even a recent episode of Doctor Who that was based all around frost fairs, you know, so they're still featuring in, in fiction, as Which I believe. It's a very romanticised idea, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But the, there is a whole romanticised view around the Victorian era of Christmases, and that's largely down to Queen Victoria, who the era was named after. She was from, uh, well, it was a Hanoverian tradition, almost a German tradition, of bringing Christmas trees into the house. So bringing a tree into the house and decorating it wasn't really a concept for anybody in Britain at the time. But Queen Victoria's mother was very keen to carry on this tradition from her home country. And Queen Victoria got involved in it as well. But it was Albert, her husband, who really became enthusiastic about decorating Christmas trees and that sort of thing. And even to this day, half the Christmas cards you're going to receive have a an, an image of a Victorian parlour with a Christmas tree or maybe snowy conditions outside. Some skaters. Some skaters, <laughs> yeah. It's, and, it, and this is it. It all seems to stem from this sort of era. And I think it's a mixture of Prince Albert, Queen Victoria, Charles Dickens and memories of the frost fairs that occurred in London. So all of our kind of images of what Christmas is really have all come from the sort of mid-1800s. It, it seems to be, yeah, yeah the, okay. the research I've we done. We sort of think of it as this, you know, this long-held tradition, and actually, yeah. in my world at least, you know, that's not very long at all. It's only what, 150, 150 years, years you know, yeah. 200 years maximum we're talking about here. Well, it's true, and, and you're talking about the Christmas cards. I, um, I saw a robin on my way to work the other morning, and I thought, why do we always associate robins with Christmas and Christmas cards? And it seems like a very similar period that this idea of the robin being associated with Christmas has come from in that the old postman in the UK or the Royal Mail postman used to go around in red um, jackets or coattails which I think originally was because it was seen as a kind of a royal colour and, yes. so, and it made them stand out I guess and they look very smart and so According to legend, anyway, the Victorian postmen were nicknamed Robins because they looked red like the bird. And so at around the time when they were wearing these coats, the whole world concept of Christmas cards was also coming about. And so people were starting to send cards to each other and then they were being delivered by the Robins. And somehow the two ideas got conflated really into people's minds and again some entrepreneurial spirit thought aha <laughs> I'll put a robin on a Christmas card because you know there's the symbolism there and um, and it just took off and so ever since we've had robins on our Christmas cards because of postmen in the 1880s. Representing those early posties. <laughs> exactly which is really fascinating. I mean, I had... the, the Victorians invented the stamps and therefore the, po- you know, the postal service as we know it, it had existed as a royal service but as a kind of a national service or a civilian service was entirely down to, you know, to Queen Victoria and all that period. So, yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense, actually. The exchanging of bits of folded cardboard. Yes. <laughs> why, why do we do that? Uh, is it, uh, am I right in thinking that robins don't migrate? Is that another reason that we think of them, or do they, they come back early? As far as I'm aware, they do migrate. But 
because what you tend to get is sort of robins from a bit further north come a bit further south, you still see robins year round. Yes, I think some migrate more than others. And I guess the other reason we see them is because they stand out as well. Whereas I think there are a lot of other British songbirds that do stay around and don't migrate as well. But they're much more hidden, they're much more camouflaged, and it's the robin that stands out. Mm. Um, and maybe you hear because some of the other birds have gone away. And they do look quite picturesque. Oh, yeah, they're, they're one of my favourite small birds. But it's interesting, actually, when you start finding out how territorial they are and how mean they are to each other. <laughs> you know, it sort of tarnishes the view. Of, uh... I think, actually, you, you mentioned them being territorial, and, of course, it's, that's what makes them sing, and we hear them for that reason during winter. I think it's one of the reasons why they're still defending their territories. Yeah. So that you hear them and you notice them because they're singing when the other birds aren't necessarily singing as much. Right, OK. So if we could interpret what they were singing, it might not be as pleasant as it sounds to us? Yeah, it may not be. I see. Right. <laughs> the other thing I, I know about robins is they tend to be the friend of the gardener, so they will follow gardeners around they were always seen as quite friendly birds but it actually turns out that what they're doing is they're waiting for us to dig up worms for them oh yeah (laughs) and what they used to do in the past was they would follow wild boar around forests and the wild boar would sort of you know forage uh, in the undergrowth and dig up worms and that sort of thing and basically they just see us as giant pigs to follow round and that's why they follow us round the garden so it's a moving fast food restaurant so maybe i'll stop now (laughs) since i'm ruining the images of robins they are interesting no but it's interesting though where all the the symbolism that we just take for granted on christmas cards come from so yeah the the tree the robin the victorian parlor they're all coming out of yeah the victorian ideal of christmas and we as you say catherine we just accept that that's normal but Actually, it's it's only been around a couple of hundred years maximum. Exactly. (laughs) It's quite surprising. So, any other Christmas facts anybody's got? I have... uh, I'll throw in one. We'll get back to the weather. So, you may know the answer to this, but where do you think the most deadly avalanche in the UK has been? Most likely would be Scotland. It's a good guess. I know Catherine knows the answer because I spoke (laughs) to her about it earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, funnily, well, Scotland, I think, is a good shout, actually, Jeff. And there is a Scottish avalanche warning service currently, um, which updates people that live in the area or climbing or whatever in the area about avalanches. So I think that's a big deal. But actually, the most deadly avalanche in the UK was in Lewis, which is in Sussex. So almost about as far removed from Scotland as you can get in the, in the British Isles, uh, very much in the south of the UK. And this occurred on the 27th of December 1836 and so most of Sussex is reasonably flat for those of you that don't know it but in the town of Lewis there's actually a very steep chalk cliff face there and so there'd been really terrible weather all over the Christmas period and there'd been very strong winds and lots of heavy snowfall starting on about Christmas Eve so on the 24th and there were some reports from the time of snow drifts that were over 10 feet high and so on the top of this cliff right next to some of the town of Lewis there was a massive build-up of snow pack basically and the blizzard was blowing the snow so it built up and it built up and they basically had this sort of large cornice uh, I think it's been termed of snow that was overhanging a street below where there were about 10 or so houses and people had seen it and earlier in the day there'd actually been a bit of a slip and it had basically taken out I think a sawmill that was uh, next to this row of houses and then on the 27th basically the whole of this cornice collapsed fell down the side of the cliff 
straight into a row of houses that were underneath, basically destroying them as though they were kind of matchsticks, skittled them out of the way. And everybody that was in the houses at the time was trapped in the snow, but luckily the people of the town reacted very quickly to it and managed to pull out, I think it's about six or seven survivors, but I haven't got, I can't find the actual numbers in my notes. Eight, eight people Is it were Eight killed. people were killed, yeah. exactly. So really, I mean, a big weather event, a tragic event, and it just, it almost seems unbelievable that something like that could happen in Sussex. So far south, yeah. So far south. You know, you, you don't hear about sort of anything on that scale happening in the places you might associate with yeah, avalanches. Which absolutely, are yeah. Wales and Scotland and things. Maybe it's more anticipated in sort of the mountainous regions. Possibly also less um, habitated. It's not necessarily going to overhang. Yeah. A valley in Scotland's not necessarily going to have a row of houses in it. That's very true. And I mean, I think at the time people were saying, look, look, you need to get out. And the, the inhabitants, because this would be a completely alien phenomenon, yes. wouldn't it? <laughs> we're a bit like, well, no, it's cold and we don't have anywhere to go. And why would we leave our homes? And unfortunately, some of them um, didn't live to tell the tale. I don't know whether, I can't work out whether I find this slightly ironic or slightly morbid, but there's now a pub in the same location as uh, that row of houses, um, a place called Boulder Row, which they've called the Snowdrop Inn. Yeah. (laughs) Which, yeah, not sure how appropriate that seems to me. Um, I've just realised it's actually, yes, Snowdrop, and I was thinking, oh, Snowdrop as in the flower, but it's not, it is actually Snowdrop as in... uh, Yeah, if you look look at the pub sign, it's houses disappearing in an avalanche. (laughs) It really is. We'll have to get this onto the show notes. I've just, yeah, I'm just looking at a picture of it now. I hadn't looked at it before. And and it is. It's an avalanche burying houses on the pub side. (laughs) Feels slightly inappropriate. Not sure. When you bear in mind that, you know, the eight unfortunates were buried in a a mass grave, you know, and I think it was, I believe it was an unmarked mass grave. Yes, you know, an unmarked communal grave. And yet there's now a pub marking. It just doesn't seem quite right somehow. It doesn't seem quite right, does it? And I mean, avalanches to this day are still a major hazard in different parts of the world, I guess particularly in the Alps region, but they also have trouble in Iceland and anywhere else where it's mountainous and snowy. So it's still a big risk. So the avalanche warning services that we have nowadays, they would have to work right the way through winter, including Christmas, would they, I would assume? I think so, yeah. I mean, I was looking at the Scottish service earlier and it they've already got some kind of initial warnings out just for where there's bad weather, because there's, there's been a bit of snowfall already, but it doesn't look like they've actually kind of got any avalanche forecasts out. But I would assume, particularly in ski resorts and things, they must be working all year. Yeah, certainly a lot of our colleagues, you know, while we're all enjoying the festivities and, and taking some time off, the office will be open 24-7 right the way through Christmas. And that will be people who are based here in Exeter, which is our headquarters. But also, you know, we have uh, what we call outstations all around the country and around the world that look after the weather and just keep an eye on things 24-7 right the way through. So it's worth mentioning that, you know, they need to be there. They need to advise even things like councils, where they need to go out and grit that night just to keep the roads clear for the rest of us who are enjoying the holidays. Well, and on that note, I guess there's lots of other people that will be working all the way through the Christmas period. So, as you say, the gritters, people that work for the road recovery services, the emergency emergency services It's easy to forget that those of us that are fortunate enough to be able to take Christmas Day off, there's a lot of people that have to work to... As we say, if, if we can work out to switch the weather off over uh, Christmas, then uh, then we can stop working. But until then, we're going to have to keep going. Oh, but then we'd never get our white Christmas, would we? <laughs> <laughs> you can't you have, have it all. Somebody's <laughs> for it. Yeah. 
So on that note, actually, the, the Met Office has a campaign at the moment about are you ready for winter? So I thought we'd do a little quick test to see. Uh, it's 12 steps, but I'll, I'll maybe shorten it. Let's see how weather ready we are for winter. So who's got a flu jab? Yes, me. I've and me. Yeah, we've all had a flu jab. Well done, everyone. So that's good. Not just for yourself, but it helps protect elderly your relatives. Co- and your colleagues. Helps colleagues, keep operation. exactly. Yeah. Particularly when you're open plan office workers like us. Okay, so I don't drive to work, but I'm guessing you guys do. So what about cars? Have you topped up your antifreeze, checked your tyres and got a winter kit ready in your car? I have. I've thought about it. Thought about it. Well, keep thinking about it, Jeff. Now's the time. (laughs) Okay, um, I'm assuming everyone's central heating is on already. Oh, yes. Very much so. Yes, my wife's been in charge of that and it's uh, yeah, currently blazing hot in our household. Is it? So the recommended level is at least 18 degrees Celsius. So it sounds like you might be slightly warmer than that then. Just a little bit warmer. Yeah, I don't know which uh, yeah which scale she's using. but uh... <laughs> I know in my house, actually, the rooms are all very different. And so if I stuck it to 18 um, on the thermostat, the upstairs would be freezing. But uh, So mine's up at about 21 <laughs> to get to about 18 everywhere. But... If mine's 18 in the lounge, it'd be about 13, I think, upstairs. <laughs> yeah, so everyone's house is different. So... Have we all checked that our pipes are insulated and do we know where our stop taps are in case of a pipe burst? I do, actually. I know where mine is. I couldn't tell you if my pipes are insulated, but I do know where the stopcock is. <laughs> so again, if it gets very cold, pipes have a risk of freezing. It's particularly an issue, actually, if people are going away for the winter, um, going on holiday, thinking about turning your heating down, things like that. Um, reading this, it's made me think, I'm not entirely sure where my stop tap is. So that might be something to go back and check. Something very relevant, actually, for those of us in Exeter here last night. We have very strong winds last night, squally showers, actually hail and things. And so have we all had a look at what's outside our houses, had a look in the garden and what might get blown around or potentially loose tiles, that sort of thing? I haven't checked it, no, but... Uh... <laughs> There you go. In fact, actually, I did... Uh, After I, last night, if it was going to... It was going to... It's already it arrived. Fall off, it, it would have done so. With a bad wind over the weekend, actually, I came downstairs first thing in the morning and realised that the, the cover that was over the table outside was basically a parachute. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was only because it was uh, attached to the bottom of one of the chairs, I think more by accident than by judgment, that it wasn't taking off. So, yeah, definitely checking things. And I think one of the key things that that tends to refer to... Well, I've, I've seen blowing around is trampolines. Um, yes. Trampolines in gardens can take off and, and do a great deal of damage. And I think actually down, down in Devon, only recently, we lost, well, some areas lost power because I think it was a trampoline had blown into power lines. Really? Taking them out. Yeah, exactly. So um, great in the summer, slightly dangerous it's in the winter. winter. So yeah. make sure you've kind of, I don't know how you would weigh something down, sandbags or whether they can be dismantled. It. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> something to be aware of. And I'm skipping through them, but the final one, freeze a loaf of bread and a pint of milk for times of bad weather. Mm. No, no, <laughs> haven't I haven't got that far. Haven't got that far. <laughs> and do you know what? I read this last night, and then realised I had to go out and get milk, and they conveniently had uh, an offer on buying two lots of milk, and so I bought a spare <laughs> four pint of milk and put it in the freezer. <laughs> there you go. So there we go. I've followed our own advice, but um, we're being slightly jokey about it. But they're all very sensible pieces of information, I think. Um, yeah, they're they're very relevant. I think I think one of the more relevant ones, especially um, around this area where there's lots of new housing estates, is just check on your neighbours, see if they're okay. You know, because especially elderly people in the winter, it, it can be quite difficult for them, and that can't be emphasised enough. If you just go around, knock on the door, make sure everything's okay. 
So, Catherine, before we started, you mentioned the words devil's footprints. I did. And then you left it hanging. (laughs) And so I'm assuming this has some amazing relevance to Christmas and to the winter period. And I have no idea what devil's footprints are. So I'm kind of desperate that you spill the beans. Well, I think to a certain extent... None of us know exactly what devil's footprints are. Um, Devil's footprints were a phenomenon that occurred basically just in one place in February 1855 around the X estuary. So that's in South Devon here. And after a heavy snowfall, and we've checked the records and there was genuinely a heavy snowfall, so we know that was true. There were trails of hoof-like marks which appeared over the snow. They covered a distance of between 40 and 100 miles, depending on who you were talking to at the time. That's still quite a long way. I that's, mean, that's even just distance. that 40 miles. Yes. You see, sorry, I've got to jump on this point here. So I've read a lot about this because I'm fascinated by all these sorts of phenomena. But how did they know it lasted 100 miles in that day and age because you didn't really well, basically to- they were just talking people sent in letters they sent in letters because they thought this was basically these tracks covered they went across fields but they also went you know they went up dra- well they didn't go up drain pipes but they went sort of up two walls and then along roofs and in, in places where animals shouldn't necessarily logically be able to go so they put it down to satan and they thought that you know the devil had been roaming around and so a lot of people wrote to their local vicars saying oh the devil's been running around on my roof essentially um so by, by putting those bits of information together, they tried to sort of piece, you know, ha- what area has this been found across? Uh, but it is, you know, some of it is known to be fake, some of it's known to be ponies, and some of it they've not yet figured out what it is. I'm going to be a bit of a cynic and say, I think all of it's fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but so we're talking quite big footprints then if you're talking pony size yeah, I, I was imagining it was like kind of bird print size but no well, well I think again it's kind of you know, I suspect it's lots of to, to be a killjoy I suspect that you know it's probably lots of different stories put together you know some of it they reckon was probably mice so it's you know that's a much smaller footprint some of it was badgers some of it was horses there's a lot of different sizes of animal which has sort of probably all been put together one person came up with the idea and somebody else bolted on their idea and somebody else bolted on their idea and suddenly this became a much a much bigger phenomenon the oldest bit perhaps is what was going across a roof but it could have been a bird or it could have been a mouse or it could have Um, been made up or it could have been made up absolutely there's uh the closest they've got to a meteorological suggestion was it was some kind of freezing rain, but no one's yet been able to actually replicate said phenomenon. Obviously, freezing rain exists, but no one's been able to actually you know replicate it creating a horseshoe shape. Um, so I was going to say, so it's we've had a big dump of snow and then follows freezing rain, and for some unknown physical reason, <laughs> it then has created patterns in the snow yes, that look like, and, and that's the bit they can't prove. Well, this this is something that. Someone has tried to explain Yeti footprints in the Himalayas. Oh, really? With the same argument? It's almost like if you have a human footprint, say, in the snow, and then there's a bit of what we call freeze-thaw action. So actually, in this case, uh, thaw-freeze action. So a bit of the, you know, the surface layer melts. And so the hole in the ground that was caused by the footprint expands slightly and then it freezes again overnight. And then when you wake up in the morning, there's these enormous footprints walking away from your camp and you think, oh, that, that can only be one thing. Uh, that's a, a yeti. And but logic actually, says the yeti, y- yes, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, you would naturally assume it's just a, yes, a cryptozoological creature. And I think this is possibly what these prints were around the ex-estuary, is some sort of freeze-thaw action going on. 
okay, everyone has their own beliefs. I think generally they don't think it was Satan running around. There's a wonderful selection of others. Um, a balloon with a chain on the end of it. Um, we even had an escaped kangaroo as an option. Wow, people were really using their imagination. They were, yes. <laughs> I mean, this this it, is one they were the kangaroo they were using to test the thickness of the ice. Yes, on, uh, quite possible. Yeah. On the excess true, it's yeah, quite stretched to an elephant, yeah. but we'll take a kangaroo. It's, it's interesting that it seems to be a kind of a Devon phenomenon. Yes. And, and maybe that's yeah. because we don't get snow down in Devon very frequently. We didn't get any over uh, last weekend where much of the UK's actually had snowfall. It didn't get as far south as us. And so I wonder whether it's partly to do with that, that it's uh, one, it's an unusual phenomena already and that people aren't used to seeing these patterns in the snow that might be completely normal and commonplace slightly further north yeah. and in parts of wales and scotland and the pennines and things yeah interesting. So i think that's probably got a lot more to do with it <laughs> but I, I, I kind of i kind of like the concept of, of this kangaroo hopping around but uh, having said that we say it's just a devon phenomena but there was also spring-heeled jack wasn't there this was a, a gent that was seen um, i think it was around london and then around I've never liverpool heard of this that's a new one on me and no. yeah he used to leap out and startle people and then just leap phenomenal distances up onto rooftops and so i don't know whether the the, the two were combined there and uh, but yeah spring-heeled jack was another chap is he a christmas phenomenon or he's just no he's just i okay. just think yeah that's just my, my mind's working at the moment <laughs> <laughs> i was wondering whether this was going to go into jack frost or yeah, something or jack but, in no, the green, but no it's completely separate okay i think should we finish off with a quick quiz i've got some stats about various christmas days yeah and i've got a couple of random things i can throw in as well so excellent, excellent. so a quick pop quiz when was the warmest christmas day and how warm was it or just how warm was it in the UK? In or? the UK. So okay. these are UK Christmas facts. Oh. Faces. Go on, take a guess. What, sort of 10 degrees, 12 degrees? 15.6 degrees. So that's, I mean, that's a proper summer's day almost. <laughs> <Summer>. <laughs> so when, the, I when bet that's that? the early 80s. I bet that's 85 or something. No. So Edinburgh in 1896. Wow. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Killerton, which I'm assuming is the place around the corner Just from us, the road actually, from us, yeah. uh, in 1920. So that's, this isn't a modern kind of climate change phenomenon. This is, you know, just natural variability. The windiest Christmas day. Any ideas how windy it might be? I can't think. Maybe mid 80s? Oh no, higher again. So the windiest Christmas day was a Salerness, which I think is in Scotland, in 2011 when it got up to 101 miles an hour. Wow. Miles an hour, wow. Yeah, which is <laughs> Hang huge. on to your hats. That's, that's really windy. And most of these are from islands or, or coastal areas. Mm. What was the temperature on the coldest Christmas day? Minus five. Oh, way, way too high. <laughs> I'm used to the south coast. <laughs> Jeff? Oh, I'd go minus 15. Oh, not too far off. It was minus 18.3 degrees, which was recorded at Gainford in Durham in 1878. But that's interesting because that's 1878. So this is back yeah. to our kind of 1870 yeah. 1880s Victorian Christmas mm. kind of idea. And finally, how about this? So in centimetres, what was the deepest snow on Christmas Day somewhere in the UK? Well, I mean... <laughs> There's lots of hand measuring going on in the studio here. Uh, 150. Well, okay, no, that's that's too high. Oh, you're too, I was thinking of it stat of drifts. Um, oh, okay, yeah. yeah. No, deepest lying snow. Interesting. No, it doesn't cover... Uh, maybe this has to be an official site as well, possibly. 15. Oh, no, kind of in the middle. So 47 centimetres. Funnily enough, in 1981, so not that far in the past, at uh, Kindragon in Perthshire. 
So, um, yeah, some some huge variability in terms of Christmas weather we get. And um, I guess we should say keep an eye on the Met Office forecast for this Christmas um, to see what's going to be the case for where you live. But Catherine, have you got some? Yeah, a couple of uh, more international ones. Uh, who gets more snow, New York or the South Pole? Oh, New York. New York, easily. 15 times as much, would you believe? Wow. A lot of the South Poles are deserts. Yes. So. <laughs> but I, I would expect it to be New York, but 15 times 15 as times. much was quite a significant amount. That's huge. That's 15 metres to every one metre at South Pole. Sorry, that's really obvious. But that's, that's I mean, just, I'm doing the snow. mental calculation. That's a lot of snow. <laughs> and if a snowflake falls on a glacier in central Greenland, how long does it take to reach the sea? Oh, so glaciers and it's going to get layer upon layer year after year we need doug and nansen back don't we, we? Do, but then when they take cores through the greenland ice shelf i mean they go back tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of years you're getting closer so, yeah <laughs> five hundred thousand years bit less but okay. you're, in, you're in the right ballpark next tuesday <laughs> Two hundred thousand years Two hundred thousand years wow for so a good snowflake grief. falling on a glacier to actually reach the sea in greenland that's impressive so well that's we've gone all the scales haven't we and um all sorts of things about christmas thank you very much jeff and catherine for joining me and sharing some interesting facts merry christmas merry christmas merry christmas Merry christmas